Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I don't have time in my life to tear shit down. Life is really short. It's really short. I just so much rather build something, even no matter how small it is, I'd rather build than tear down and try and do something positive. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Paul Haletko, founder and distiller of Few Spirits in Evanston, Illinois. Haletko's imaginative approach to bourbon, whiskey, and gin have garnered many accolades since Few's inception in 2011, including Whiskey Advocate Craft Whiskey of the Year and Icons of Gin World Distiller of the Year. We discuss his approach to ingredient selection and the construction of his brown spirits, including mash bill, barrel sourcing, yeast strains, and adjuncts. We discuss the significance of the distillery's location in relation to the temperance movement and the correlations between songwriting and creating flavor. While Paul is mission and vision driven, he is an ally of small distilleries in the industry, having served as the president of the American Craft Spirits Association and on the advisory board of Discus, the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. I take the opportunity to ask about relevant topics in the industry, including consolidation among larger distilleries and distributors and direct consumer sales. Let's dive and get heavy. Paul Haletko, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Well, good to be here, Alexander. It's uh, been a minute. Uh, happy to be here, though. You've worn a lot of professional hats before starting a distillery. You were a professional musician, record label owner, and a patent attorney. I gather from these that you enjoy making or being around or near people that make things or create things. How did these paths sort of lead towards founding a distillery? You know, I just think it's like a long kind of trail, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally you're right. I like to make stuff and I like to be around people that make stuff. That's what really kind of gets me excited. Like I really, I don't like pushing paper across a desk. I don't like paper. I don't like, I, I don't like, you know, uh, you know, counting time with uh, coffee stirs and so on. Uh, if I could make the uh, little proof rock reference, I guess I like to make stuff. And so that's kind of where I've always been all my whole life and creating is cool. Uh, and so I kind of ended up here based on trying a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, finally, you know, basically I kind of got lucky and I finally found something I'm good at and that's fundamentally it. And I, I kind of got here, it took me a minute to kind of find my way, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's kind of life, right? Like, you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans and, there is no such thing as a direct path or, you know, you can say the same thing a whole bunch of different ways. Like, you know, there is no destination. There's only a journey. And you know, I truly fundamentally believe in that, that it's the journey that matters, not where you're going. And I guess kind of my life is kind of proof of that. But you know, I kind of ended up in the distillery business based on a couple of things. You know, one, I like beverage alcohol. Uh, that doesn't really make me unique or anything. It just means that, you know, I have a pulse, uh, but, uh, 
you know, I'm not that different than a lot of other people, but what does make me different is I kind of got inspired. And what really inspired me to start the distillery is a little bit of family history. And so, you know, A, combine this creative bent with family, because family is what matters the most in the world. And you know, effectively what happened was my grandpa died. And that's significant uh, you know, for all of us, because it does happen for most people. But for me, it was material because of his legacy, I guess, or his past or whatever, however you want to call it. Because prior to World War II, his family had owned a major brewery in Czechoslovakia, uh, where the Czech Republic is now. Uh, if you're up on your world history, you probably rec- remember that in 1939, the Nazis invaded. Uh, and when they did that, they confiscated the family brewery and murdered the entire family in the camps, uh, except for my grandfather, obviously. And although Grandpa survived, you know, he spent the rest of his life trying to get the brewery back, but never did. And when he did die, it kind of struck me that all of that legacy and history and you know, all that stuff was gone forever if I don't do something about it. And so few is really kind of a way to combine this desire and passion to create with family. And I always talk about, you know, to me, few and distilled spirits, you know, it's art. Like, you know, we try to put liquid art in a bottle every day. You know, few and distilled spirits, to me, you know, it, it is art. It's also a business. Uh, this is how I feed my family. So I put food on my table. It's how I pay my rent. It's how I take care of, uh, you know, we've got a bunch of employees now. It's not just me. Uh, certainly it's not just me and, you know, the <laughs> other people do the lion's share of the work at this point. But it's also blood and it's passion and it's family and it's art and it's business and it's all these things all rolled up into one. I don't want to say that anything's more important or less important, but family is more important. And the sum of all of these things, of creativity, of family, makes this much more compelling than doing something for someone else. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm a terrible employee. I have a real problem with authority. You know, we all have our personality flaws uh, me probably more than most, uh, but uh, I really don't handle authority very well. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a natural entrepreneurial mindset is, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. That's just life, you know? And I've gotten old enough that, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you worry about when you're younger, you, you kind of stop caring about as you get older. And I'm definitely in that in that camp. As far as paying homage to something your grandfather lost as well, why not a brewery then instead of a distillery? Was it ever a question of being specific to the specific type of beverage or was it more beverage alcohol in general, just being in that realm? I kind of wanted to avoid being in the shadow of a major brewery. You know, once you do that, I mean, there are a couple of things. One, I don't want to be in the shadow. Uh, once you're in the shadow, it's always going to be a question of, all right, am I making a lager beer or am I not making a lager beer? Um, if I'm making it or not making it, am I making it because I'm trying to do, make it for the right reason because it's a creative choice or am I not making it because it's a non-creative choice? Like, you know, why am I making the decisions I'm making? Two, I really feel like it's an opportune time to do something positive and not just be raising a, a fist at the sky. 
You know, I think it's really easy to sit there and go, oh, why me? Why have you forsaken me? It's a lot more positive to go and create and rebuild and make rather than try and tear something down. I don't have time in my life to tear shit down. Life is really short. Like, it's really short. I'd just so much rather build something, even no matter how small it is. I'd rather build than tear down. Yeah, at some point, maybe, uh, at some point, maybe Grandpa will be proud of me. Uh, but until then, I can keep on building uh, and try and do something positive. And then third, yeah, like I said before, like, this is a business. And if you kind of go back in time and look at what was going on when we started Few, uh, you know, hindsight's of course twenty twenty. But at the time, I was kind of looking at it, going, "All right, uh, if I'm going to make beer here in Cook County, I'm going to need to make beer that is better beer than Goose Island, Three Floyds, Half Acre, Metropolitan, Two Brothers." Uh, I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but I'm not going to make better beer than they make. They make great beer. Like it's just, I'm not going to happen. You can feel free to give me the respect and say I'd make beer just as good. And whether I can or can't isn't relevant. I'm not going to make beer better. So how am I going to beat them in business? Well, then I'm going to have a a better sales and a better marketing team. Well, okay. Uh, Also not going to happen. Even aside from that, even if you pretend that it could happen, uh, I don't have any money. And all of these things cost money. I'm not going to make better beer than they do. I'm not going to have a better sales team than they do. I'm not going to have a better marketing team than they do. Why, you know, how is this going to help me rebuild a family legacy uh, with both hands tied behind my back and I'm blindfolded? It's not going to help. And then I look at distilled spirits and, you know, doing what we do now at the time, there were maybe like 15, 20 people, no more than 30 across the country doing what we were doing. And so, I mean, you can just rattle off, you know, 10 exquisite breweries just in Cook County that I have to compete against. Or I can look at a country where there's maybe 20 to 30 people doing it total. I look at 20 people doing something across the country, and that's not competition. That's friends. Or, you know, look at Cook County. That's all competition. And, you know, we everybody loves everybody. We're all good. Don't get me wrong. But spirits just made a hell of a lot more sense. That's a great point. If we're looking at 2011, when Few was founded, there were 260 distilleries in the U.S. in total. And looking today, there's probably over 2,200. It was very different than even comparatively the number of craft breweries in the U.S., which at that time probably numbered around the number of distilleries that there are today, for a simple analogy. So you are filling a certain need. And then the choice of Evanston's also, you live in Evanston, so there's a convenience factor, but Evanston has a certain symbolic role when it comes to the temperance movement and prohibition. Do you want to elaborate on the sort of correlation there? Sure. I mean, fundamentally, Evanston was kind of the birthplace of the prohibition movement across the country. Uh, Obviously, these things have happened, you know, circled around time immemorial, but the group that really drove the entire prohibition movement forward nationally was a group called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And they ended up being based here in Evanston because the second head of the WCTU was an Evanston resident named Frances Elizabeth Willard. And so a lot of people see a similarity with her initials and our name. 
although that is, of course, a complete and total coincidence. But you know, being here in Evanston presented some challenges. You know, once I committed to open a distillery, the next kind of question was where. You know, because I wanted to actually make whiskey, which is you know at that time largely unheard of. You know, you were talking about two hundred and seventy distilleries, or whatever. Uh, for the most part, none of them made whiskey. Certainly not grain. You know, certainly not from grain from scratch. And certainly not in Illinois either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's Koval, which is you know remains one of the best distilleries in the country, and you know was when we started and is today. But again, like we're not talking about competition. We're talking about friends. I, I just think that's a fantastic thing. And so being here in Evanston, the challenge was, this is where I live, but the challenge was is that Evanston had 170 years of very profound prohibitionist tendencies. You know, the city itself was actually founded specifically to outlaw alcohol. And so, you know, there's a lot of challenges and some opportunities with that, but it just made sense to me to put the distillery where I live and where I raise my kids. That's a very sort of interesting counterpoint is that this is sort of the place where this movement bore its brunt and now you have a distillery there. Was there any resistance to what you were trying to do in light of that history? Not really. I mean, I think that uh, you know, it took a lot of work. I mean, it took you know, it was well over three years of work to get it up and running before we actually did anything. But the city was fantastic to work with. You know, yes, I lost track of my city hearings after 15 hearings. But I never took a single no vote at any one of those hearings. You know, basically every hearing was, wait, what is that? Wait, what? Okay, you've got my vote. Yeah, we're good. But you got to tell me more. A distillery in Evanston? That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Talk to me. So, I mean, a lot of work. There were, there was obstacles. There were challenges. But working with the city was fantastic. And like I said, I, yes, I had to do a lot of work, but I never took a no vote. I want to look at some of the construction of some of your products. One of the things that's interesting to me is I sort of look at things a little more with a beer background. And so I see you using a beer yeast, like a Belgian yeast. I see things that are a little bit outside of what is prescribed for bourbons and, you know, the construction of your products are a little bit different. And I imagine at the time were very different. Let's start with the rye, for example. I know MGP's ryes are considered pretty standard and those use more rye, as I understand, than you at 70%. So starting with kind of the grain profile and choices, how did you come to the choice of the proportion of rye and how do you sort of view your choices in terms of the grain you know i think that you know work coming up with your mash bill is certainly important but i think one of the big keys and especially as a guy like you coming from a beer background spirits are fundamentally different and you know one of the simpler ways to think about it is that when you're talking to a customer you know a beer guy can go out and say well what, what are you going to do drink bud light and the beer drink back, oh, of course, of course not. I'm not going to drink Bud Light. I got, I, I need to drink an IPA from here or there. And, you know, I like this IPA better because of this or that, that IPA, but I'm not going to drink Bud Light. In whiskey, that's just simply not true. You know, you can't say, oh, what are you going to do, drink Jim Beam? Because, yeah, you're going to drink Jim Beam. They make great whiskey. And so on the spirit side, you you can't compete based on quality. Because your competitors make amazing quality stuff. You have to have something that's competitively differentiated. And so I think that's kind of where we started building all our stuff was trying to figure out a way 
that we can do something that's different than our large competitors. Not because they don't make great stuff, but because they do. And so you, know, you start off with a mash bill of, you know, what are the other mash bills that are out there? How can I make my mash bill different? So you can look at the legal rules for rye, 51% rye, distilled less than 160, 125, 80. You, know, you look at all the rules for rye, and you're, okay, those are the basic rules. Now what can I do that's a little bit different? Oh, okay, well, effectively every rye that's out there is either 95 or 100% rye, uh, i.e. your MGP mash bill, or it's going to be 51% rye. Oh, why don't I come somewhere in the middle? Let's get somewhere that's going to have all of that benefit of the rye grain. You're going to get that spice. You're going to get that kind of pickle. You're going to get that peckle, <laughs> that pepper. You're going to get all those great classic rye flavors. But when you add in, say, for example, 20% corn like we use, you're going to balance that out. It's not going to only be the spice. It's not going to only be that pepper. You're going to get you're going to get spice, you're going to get pepper, you're going to get all of those wonderful rye characteristics, but you're also going to add in some sweetness to back it up and make it a much more complex, full-flavored uh, whiskey. And then on top of that, we then use our yeast to really tweak the flavors of the whiskey, which is something that is kind of beer 101, but is remains relatively unheard of in whiskey uh, and was all but unheard of when we started making these flavors count and making it all stand out this is where we are you know we are in the liquid art business and so we're going to express our art a little bit differently than other distilleries and that's kind of the point you know if you like somebody else's whiskey better than mine drink theirs as long as it's good we're all good <laughs> just drink good whiskey you're talking about yeast profile as being another sort of balancing force because high percentage rye whiskeys are obviously like when there's that much rye, there's going to be a lot of similarities in profile, regardless of whether one distillery makes it or a huge one makes it and it's bottled all over the country. There's only so much more flavor you can have outside of that. When you're looking at like using a French yeast, for example, you also use a Belgian yeast and the beer enthusiast in me thinks Belgian yeast and 70% rye, that's dangerous because of like redundant spice profiles coming off of a Belgian yeast and then the 70% rye. So a French yeast is like very interesting because I'm imagining a French yeast being more on like the dark fruit side, complementing rye in like a very interesting way. Was that kind of where your thought was in terms of using different yeasts? Because that's also unique for a distillery to have multiple yeast strains that it uses. Oh, 100%. I mean, certainly for a rye, what we were looking for is exactly what you're saying, that kind of that kind of dark fruit. So we use a yeast that comes out of Loire Valley. I uh, think those kind of plums and pears, uh, tart cherries. Uh, for our bourbon, that's where we use the Belgian yeast. And so bourbon, of course, is heavy on the corn, going to be a little bit sweeter. So we're going to go and try and get some more of those kind of spicier flavors that we might be able to get from, say, for example, a Belgian beer yeast. You know, focus it on that kind of uh, that cinnamon, that cassia bark, you know, bring some of that spice into the world of bourbon, which is, again, stereotypically sweeter and will bring in some fruit into the world of rye whiskey, which is stereotypically going to be a little bit spicier, trying to play at least a little bit against uh, expectations and create something that's new and different that, you know, somebody can come out there and try our whiskey and go, yes, I like that. And I prefer that flavor to, you know, pick whatever major brand you want. 
you know, you can like my whiskey better than theirs. We have their quality. Uh, we meet or match their quality and we taste different. And if you like mine better, come drink mine. If you like theirs better, go drink theirs. And that's okay. We don't need everybody to like a few spirits. We only need a few people to like us. These were bold statements to make 10 years ago or nine or even eight years ago. How are these sorts of things perceived in the market? Because, I mean, the whiskey and the bourbon market was conservative then. How are these things sort of received? Yeah, I think the whiskey and bourbon markets tend to uh, be very uh, trend-driven and people follow the trends. And so basically we're kind of making a lot of the trends. <laughs> but, you know, we we tend to not worry as much about what people are going to say about us we try to grade ourselves based on how true we are to who we are and what we are. And when we excel at doing what we want to be doing, we really don't have to worry about other people because we're doing what we want to do. And the people that enjoy what we do are going to find us and get on board with us. Uh, the people that don't, you know, they're not my customers anyways. That's okay. Just go drink something else. As long as you're not a dick about it, I don't care. Returning to sort of the profiles of the spirits, tell me a little bit about sort of the wood that you're using. I understand that you're using wood from Minnesota for your cooperage. How does that sort of play into the signatures that you're looking to accomplish? Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, people always ask, like, what's the most important thing we do for our flavor? And there is no answer because everything we do matters. Um there is no aspect of the whiskey making process that doesn't have an effect on the flavor. And certainly the Coopers matter. Um, so when we started off, we started working with a small family owned Cooperage up in Minnesota because, you know, frankly, we liked them. Uh, we liked the people. We liked who they were. We tried their barrels. We liked them. And, you know, yeah, over the last 10 years, you know, we've been unfaithful a couple of times, but we always come home because their barrels are the best barrels we've found to get the flavor that we want. And so we pay more for the barrels than we would somewhere else. And that's okay. We get the flavor that we're looking for. It's Minnesota oak. Grows farther north than most of our competitors get their oak. Farther north it grows, the shorter the growing season, the shorter the growing season, the tighter the grain. And it changes the character of the whiskey. Whether it changes the character for the good or for the bad is kind of up to the person drinking it. But we like the way it treats our whiskey, and we're going to keep on doing it that way. And, you know, we like it. You know, we like working with a small family on Cooperage. We like working with these people. They're good people. Um, and we started off with them. You know, Richard would bring us down a bar you know, a couple barrels at a time every couple of weeks, and he'd drive them down eight hours each way. You know, like a you know, $1,000 sale, and he'd drive 16 hours to make it. Well, now we've got, uh, you know, now they have a 40-hour-a-week shift that makes our barrels. Uh, and so, you know, we'll be able to grow with them and they'll be able to grow with us. And I think that's really cool and really special that, you know, they pursue their art making barrels. We pursue our art making whiskey. Uh, other people pursue their art making music or podcasts or uh, ballet and architecture and sculpture. These are all amazing fields of art and it's a beautiful thing that we can all express our own creativity in our own way. To me, that's just awesome. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Paul Holetko in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. 
Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Paul Haleko. In terms of the flavor compositions, do you view when you're thinking of flavor in a similar way that you did as a musician in terms of the beverage as a composition? I, I think to a large extent, yeah. And it's been really fun that, you know, we've worked with a bunch of musicians now, uh, like some pretty large name musicians, um, which is really cool that we get to work with these people. But you do kind of start off the exact same way. Like, you know, what are we trying to express? Whether it's, you know, we've got a collaboration with Black Rebel Motorcycle Club coming out in a couple of months. Uh, I'm real excited about it, but we started off with, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the feeling that we want? What are the flavors we want? What's the concept of what we have? What What's cool? And then you just kind of build on what's cool with, you know, you know what if we did this? What if we did that? You know, what? It, and so, but instead of, well, you know, what if we took the A minor to a C here and then added in, you know, added in a B minor here just to kind of get a little bit of uh, conflict and then we'll resolve it with a seven to get even a little more conflict. And then bam, we're going to bring it back in with that major and uh, you know, a whole bunch of fuzz uh, or, okay, we're going to layer a top note over here with some sweetness, but we really want it to be spice. And, you know, here's how we're going to carry all that. And, you know, the construction of a bottle of whiskey is fundamentally different than the construction of a sculpture or a painting, but the creativity is the same and it's just in how you approach the art. Was there like a, out of curiosity, like a specific time that you kind of became aware of that correlation? No, I think it's just really kind of like who we are as a company is that creativity. Like, you know, I don't know that it's probably really much more in hindsight that I'm kind of go, that I'm kind of able to put it together and say, "Oh, here's how we do it." But you know, I mean, you start off like, you know, here's how we're going to build a song. You know, back in the day, managing bands. Here's how we're going to build a. You know, here's how we're going to build a career. We're going to start this way. We're going to layer this in. We're going to add that on, and as you put together all these building blocks, this thing should grow. Same thing with making whiskey. We're going to put together all these building blocks of brand and bottle and liquid and flavors and you know all these things that kind of go into building whiskey. It's the same thing that goes into building a brand or a podcast or a music festival. These things are all the same. It's just you have a different, you know, the inputs are different, but the output's the same. It's a hard thing to describe apart from saying, it's the same thing because I feel the same exact way. I've obviously put on music events. I managed bands. I've had a record label. I've done so many different things in music and beverage. And so it's hard to describe how it is apart from 
you pick up a lot of things along the way and you apply like a extremely intuitive process of how you understand and how you create things to whatever's new and you have some kind of natural intuition of what is going to work based on observation but you kind of have to try it in order to work because reading about it in abstract and trying to follow that is really difficult <laughs> Yeah, true story. You know, another thing that is interesting about your spirits is sort of the use of coffee and some of the botanicals in the gin. And you have cold cut bourbon where you are cutting the bourbon with cold brew coffee. I think that that's a very interesting incorporation. I mean, one, it's an interesting way to cut a spirit to begin with in general is not with water, but then finding a beverage like coffee to use is very, very interesting. How did you sort of come about finding this sort of connection? I think working with coffee is always just kind of a thing, primarily just because I drink enough coffee to kill a small horse. And so, you know, working with coffee was always kind of a little bit of a natural because you know, I drink a lot of coffee. I drink a lot of whiskey. I drink a lot of coffee. What if we put them together? Um, and so, you know, we did a couple of different iterations on playing with spirit and coffee before our cold cut came out, uh, ranging from a collaboration we did with Chameleon Cold Brew Coffee out of Austin. And then we also worked with a uh, pretty famous Chicago roastery uh, to do a coffee-flavored gin. Uh, so we worked with Dark Matter Coffee and put out a gin with them, and that was awesome. But neither product really hit what we were all about, which was that repeated visit. Uh, this is, you know, it's one thing to do something that's really, really cool. It's another one to come back and say, "I want to try that again. I want to drink that again." You know, it's easy to, you know, it's easy to put out a music festival, but it's way harder to put out a music festival that somebody's going to go, "I'm not missing that next year." I'm going to come back. Yeah, I saw that. That was cool. I'm not going back. It's pretty easy to put together a whiskey that somebody, that a whiskey aficionado is going to try. It's a lot harder to put together a whiskey that they're going to try and go, yeah, I've got to have that. And I'm not going to have that not be in my collection ever again. And that's important to have something that people will come back to because if people aren't enjoying your art, uh, what's the point of being an artist? <laughs> Right. Well, you're screaming in the woods at that point by yourself, right? In terms of arriving at, is there a specific roaster that you're using for that or specific ideas of how the roast is going to interplay with the base spirit that you think drives that characteristic that you tie to it actually being something you want to keep making? Yeah, we, we work with a, with a Chicago roaster called Passion House. A couple of reasons. One, the owner's a friend of mine. Uh, two, I really like the coffee a lot. Three, it's got a lot of balance. It's not quite as, uh, shall we say, aggressively caffeinated as dark matter is. Uh, I love dark matter coffee, but uh, yeah, sometimes you have a cup of dark matter and you're not sure if you just drink a cup of coffee or blew a rail. Uh, and so it's... Uh, <laughs> that happened to me the other day. I, I, had to, I, just, I had to like lay down for a little bit and calm myself down. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, love dark matter. It's great coffee, but, uh, it was just a little intense for what we were working with or what we're trying to accomplish and work, you know, so passion house has their cold brew coffee. And one of the, uh, one of the, I think it was kind of a hidden challenge working with coffee for us was coffee is of course ground before it gets brewed, which is cool. Obviously it's, I mean, this seems stupid to say, 
But what ends up happening when you're grinding coffee is that no matter how good of a burr grinder you have or whatever grinder you use, there's always going to be really tiny little specks, little bits, little bits that don't make it through a filter or that don't get caught by the filter, more importantly. And so it was important to us that we needed to find a commercially available cold brew because A, we wanted cold brew, not warm, because we wanted to focus on the sweeter side of the coffee bean. We didn't want to focus on acid. We wanted to focus on sweet. Two, we had to find somebody that had it commercially available because we had to have a really good filter because we're making whiskey. Yes, we filter it, but we deliberately do a really kind of poor job of filtration because for whiskey, the best filtration is the minimal filtration. For coffee, we really needed a much better filtration. Otherwise, we're going to end up with little floaties in the bottle, uh, which one is visually off-putting, but even more important than visually, it's going to be flavor off-putting because those little specks are going to continue to extract flavor. And once they extract out the good flavors, all you're getting is bitterness and not the flavors you're looking for. So we have to make sure that the coffee that we're using is impeccably filtered. So working with co- working with Passion House made sense. Uh, plus, I love Josh, man. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> Handling coffee in beer is also challenging. And I can imagine in spirit when you're working with a clear bottle and there's consumers have different types of expectations when you're naked on the shelves like that in comparison to being in a can. And sometimes you can't even see through these beers to begin with anyways. It's challenging for the reasons you listed. And, you know, you can get a lot of like green pepper flavor and a lot of stuff. You don't want beer. And I would certainly wouldn't want any of that in whiskey unless you call it a chili whiskey and you let those things kind of intertwine naturally over time. But I don't know if that's the best move. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's not the way we did. It. I mean, I think there's obviously, I'm sure there's a way we could do it the other way, and I'm sure we could do it well, uh, but we don't. <laughs> in terms of other adjunct use, you know, you have used uh, Earl Grey tea in your breakfast gin. So on the clear spirit side, I suppose, do you view sort of your adjunct use in any different way, or is it a similar sort of element in the composition? Well, on the clear side, uh, for, the, for the breakfast gin, for example, the tea goes in pre-distillation. So there's going to be no worries about having, you know, floaties in the bottle. It's never going to get there because the solids don't go, solids are not going to pass through the still. So we don't have any worries there. Again, I think every project is going to have different requirements based on, you know, what's important, what are you trying to accomplish, where are we going with this? You know, working, for example, with the Immortal Rye, which is kind of the same concept as the cold cut bourbon, uh, but instead of using cold brew coffee, we use cold extracted tea. And instead of bourbon, we use few rye. So there we actually make the tea ourselves, but tea leaves don't get ground. So you get a, <laughs> the filtration requirements are much easier, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Or stringent. <laughs> Stringent is probably a bad word to use with tea because of astringent, but I don't know. In this particular context, maybe, but otherwise, I I think that these are just sort of interesting ideas to incorporate into spirit just because when you're talking about gin, there's like a lot of different flavors that people have used or different sort of riffs on locality or sort of like what's grown around where they are. How important is sort of like locality in your ingredient choice? You know, I think everything matters. You know, it, it's every aspect of the process has an effect on the flavor, whether it's the grain or where we're getting botanicals from or what coffee we're using or what tea we're using. 
to the fermentation temperatures, the yeast we use, uh, our mashing regimen has a major effect on the flavor. Distillation proof, distillation techniques, how quick are we running, how slow are we running, barrel entry, barrel exit, where is it stored, what kind of wood, what kind of char, uh, all these things have effects on the flavor, and that's kind of where we get to pursue our art is in those kind of gaps. You know, the science of distillation is pretty easy. The art is extremely complex, and that's where the that's where the fun is is in the art. You also released a bottled in bond expression. I think it was last fall, if memory serves correct. There's an interesting sort of thing here where you aren't entirely interested in doing things in the way that the industry has prescribed, or maybe you're tired of hearing about it. So how does a bottled in bond expression sort of play into that with that mentality? Yeah, I, people want something called bottled in bond. And this is an art. This is also family, but it's also a business. And uh, I can stick to my creative guns for a long time, but I get tired of fighting fights. Um, it just wears you down. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, I finally broke down and put the word straight on our bottles. We didn't have straight on there for a long time, not because it wasn't straight whiskey, but because I don't like it. I don't like being told what I have to do. Again, I have a problem with authority, but I got tired of defending people. If it doesn't say straight, you must be putting stuff in there. Like, no, we're not putting stuff in there. Like, we're not doing that. Well, if you if you weren't doing that, why wouldn't you put it on there? Like, well, I don't put it on there because I'm an asshole and I don't like, like here's why I don't do it. It's because I'm a dick. And they, well, you know, obviously you're cheating somehow. I'm like, I'm not fucking cheating. You know, why do we put bottled and bond out? I'm tired of fighting with people. Everybody says bottled and bond means it's so good. Well, it doesn't, but uh, fine. Here you go. Here's your bottled and bond. And it's always hilarious as people try to, oh, this is so much better than your core. I'm like, really? It is. It's the exact same liquid. It's just 100 <laughs> proof instead of 93. But it's so much better, is it? Oh, cool. Yeah. No, it's identical. Thank you for the comment. Thank you for the compliment, but. Uh, it is the same liquid, guys. That is sort of interesting in that people will have an impression one way of a core product, but then you give them something that maybe the starting point is exactly the same, but a process may be different and their opinion is so much different just because of the wording or because of how it's framed in the market or whatever their own expectations and the baggage that they bring as a consumer has on it. Do you find like over time as craft spirits have frankly, become more popular and there's more of them out there that the consumer's expectations have kind of changed in terms of what they're expecting in the bottle from a smaller distiller? I, I don't think so. I think people could always expected to have the exact same quality. Again, like you can't, our, our large competitors put out great products. So I think for the most part, people's expectations have always been the same and they justifiably expect our products to be as good as our competition and they're, you know, they should expect that, you know, I think historically not necessarily all craft distillers have met that standard, but, you know, as we sit here today in you know, January, 2022, uh, I think there's a pretty good number of craft distillers that do meet that standard. And certainly I would include few in that, in that list. I, I don't think people expect more of us now. I think maybe they uh, might be a little quicker to, not give leeway uh, because again, there aren't, you know, there are great craft distillers out there putting out liquid that's as good as large guys, if not better, like few. So I think the consumers are kind of consumers aren't necessarily giving craft distillers a pass anymore. And I think there's a lot less confusion that small equals good, but 
uh, people are coming around and the high-end, well-known quality distillers like Fee Spirits uh, are doing well. I want to touch on a couple of other sorts of industry topics since you've played a role on the Craft Advisory Council for Discus. You've served the industry beyond just your role as the founder of Few. And so I'm kind of curious about a couple of things that are sort of talked about in the industry. One being reduction, excise tax reduction occurred when you were working closely with the American Craft Spirits Association. It was 2016, 2017. And so now there's a discussion about excise tax reform again. Obviously, I'm assuming anyone that produces alcohol loves excise tax reform at all times, but there's discussion about it specifically. I'm imagining the pandemic and the loss of on-premise sale for a year drive some of that conversation. The discussions around ready-to-drink cocktails and having better price parity to beer where you're playing in similar categories as far as the consumers see it. Where do you sort of see things when you're looking at it from like an advocacy standpoint for smaller distillers? Well, I think as you, when you look at uh, excise tax, I think that one of the big things to recognize is not necessarily that it was just that it was a reform, but that, that we achieved at least partial parity with beer and wine. You know, a drink is a drink is a drink. There's the same amount of alcohol in a beer as there is in a glass of wine as there is in an ounce and a half of spirits. And so if a drink is a drink is a drink, why should the why should the drink in the form of spirits uh, be taxed at thirteen fifty a gallon when the beer is taxed at forty cents a gallon? You know why is why should spirits be taxed more heavily than beer when a drink is a drink is a drink? And so securing that sort of tax parity was critical for small distilleries because it's just that's all cash that's hidden. Um, you know people complain that oh spirits are so expensive. I'm like well. It's all taxes, guys. <laughs> you know that we don't get that money. That's all tax, uh, and so you know, the opportunity to bring taxation on beer, wine, and spirits to be at least partially similar uh, was a big deal for spirits. And of course, beer and wine still got their taxes reduced too. So we still don't have actual parity, but uh, we're a hell of a lot closer than we were, at least for the small guys like us. In terms of ready-to-drink cocktails and things of the sort, I'm not sure if that is within Fuse's purview as far as what you want to dabble into. But there is talk about further reform. Is this the same sort of thrust is to create parity because a 5% can of something with spirit versus a 5% thing with beer in it is still a drink, a drink, a drink? A drink's a drink is a drink. Like Whether or not it's 5%, if you got... You know, 5% of distilled spirit in a can versus 5% of a 5% FMB, you're getting just as drunk. It's five, it's still 5% alcohol. And so why does, why should the way that the alcohol is delivered to you make a difference in the taxation? Now you can, you can prefer one or the other based on flavor. Maybe you want this, maybe you want that, but that's a consumer's decision. And I don't see why the taxation level on one should be different than the other. In terms of distribution, a lot of small craft distilleries may have a hard time getting a hold of distribution or come out at a time when distributors are actually consolidating and there may even be fewer options for them to find a wholesale partner. Do you think that with that sort of backdrop and for you coming from a background as a small distiller, do you feel for them in terms of wanting direct-to-consumer access? 
You know, I think it's always a difficult balance because there's not much reason why we cannot sell any which way. Uh, the Puritan, the puritanical nature of an awful lot of alcohol regulation in the U.S. is bizarre. Um, on the other hand, people complain if they can't get distribution. It's also a little bit bizarre as well because there is literally always room in the marketplace for good brands selling good products with a good marketing and sales plan. There is 100% of the time there is room for that product in the market, no matter what market it is. There will always be room for good products at the right price at the right time. So if people saying they can't get distribution, frequently my experience has been that what they're really under, not understanding is that they're missing something. They don't have a good product. They don't have a good brand. They don't have a good way to work with other people in a distribution system. And obviously not all these things are true for everybody, but I'm just saying like you know, these are things that I've seen. You know, an awful lot of people believe that the rest of the world is there for them. And so just because you threw up a still does not mean that people are desperate for your products. If it's not in the right package, at the right price, at the right place, and you don't have a reason to put it in there. Like the store, you know, the store is not there just because they want to sell your products. The store is there because they want to make money. If your product is going to make that store more money, they're going to carry that product seven days a week and twice on Sunday. Unless they can't sell it on Sundays. That's just the reality of the situation. And so if you come into the business world with a subpar business, uh, that's not the fact of a distribution or a three-tier system. It's your fault for bringing a crappy business into the, into the world. If you get your ducks in a row, you're going to be good to go. It's like you're like a music festival. You book, If you bring out a music festival and it fails, there are a number of reasons why that music festival could fail. One, you booked the wrong bands. Two, you booked the wrong venue. Three, maybe you shouldn't have booked the music festival to run from 5 a.m. until noon on a Tuesday morning. Maybe you should have. I don't know. Again, depends on what your market is, but... Mm -hmm. There are a large number of reasons why music festivals fail, uh, and there are a large number of reasons why they win, but it's not the fault of the promoter, or maybe it is the fault of the promoter, but it's not the fault of the fans if they didn't want to go see the heavy metal show at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Fair enough. I mean, shame on them for not, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, of course. <laughs> There is obviously evidence just by seeing how many brands launch that wholesalers are always willing to take chances on new products that come in that have a good business plan. It's not as though the doors are closed. I suppose my question comes more also from a perspective of should distillers have a similar access to customers that wine does within the direct-to-consumer platform? Well, again, I think it's a little bit of yes and no, and I think the answer is that it's difficult for there to be legal rules that require it. But at the same time, when you look at the wine business, it looks fundamentally very different than the spirits business. Wine is extremely centralized. The vast, vast majority of wine comes from just a couple of companies. And yes, you have a whole bunch of these small wineries that are out there kind of dancing on the periphery where they're selling, you know, 500 cases, 1,000 cases a year. But it's really difficult for that winery to break out because they fundamentally can't. You know, so, I mean, I think the fragmentation of the wine business is a result of that. 
There's also a tourism element that comes with the wine industry and specifically like you go on a trip and you find a wine somewhere and then you're able to order it online. And I wonder sort of with what's happening with wholesale consolidation with larger companies in general sort of finding each other, if spirits like craft beer are becoming more like local expressions. And so if it's harder to find distribution in other markets, if DTC is a way for you to continue to reach people who have had access to you in the past, I mean, it's never going to be a huge finance driver for these companies. Anyways, I think I was looking at some statistics from a wine industry publication and it was like more or less DTC sales are for most producers less than 6% of what they sell anyways. So it's not even a huge mark for them, but it rubs against the wholesale aspect, which is extremely powerful in this country. I'm aware. Do you have any sort of uh, parting thoughts for our audience before we close up, Paul? No, hopefully you can get a chance to check us out online. Find us at your favorite local retailer, but online you can find us, fewspirits.com. Speaking of DTC, buyfewspirits.com. We'll ship to 46 states directly uh, in a three-tier compliant package. You can find us on all your social medias at Few Spirits and come by and take a tour that you can book online at fewspirits.com. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Have a great day.